We're going to be in Luke chapter 7 today, verse 11 through 17. If you have a Bible, I'd go ahead and encourage you to turn there. That's on page 863 of the Bibles in the pews. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, you can also follow along on our Version live event if you like using technology. Uh, all the notes are there, the quotes that will be on the screen. Everything is there for you to take home with you. <clears throat> as we, as we kind of settle in on this, last Sunday as we, as we gathered here and as we studied from Luke chapter 7, I called you to an increasing faith, to a growing faith really, to a, a greater faith in the Christ that has revealed himself to us. You know, this, this Jesus who has, who has taught and then exemplified his teaching, but then also in the Jesus that we met in those passages, I showed you four things from the text. Jesus is, is great, Jesus is glorious, Jesus is good, and Jesus is gracious. This Jesus who is these things, I just called us, and the scripture calls us to a greater and an increasing faith in him. Here's the thing. As we gathered here last Sunday talking about this, this Christ, this Jesus who is good and glorious and, and gracious and great, this Jesus who is these things, the news was breaking about 49 people who had been shot in a nightclub in, in Orlando. There's confusion over the numbers at first. I don't know if you watched any of the reports as they came out. I was able to catch up. With them, there's confusion over the numbers at first. There was emotion of all sorts. I mean, it was expressed in a number of different ways. Some were seen clinging to loved ones. Some were dazed and confused. Some were uh, some were just (laughs) simply looking to place the blame and trying to find answers. Some were crying and, and and didn't know what to do. I personally don't know anyone directly affected by this series of events. I mean, by, by that I mean, I don't know anyone personally that knew someone or was related to someone that was shot in those events or that witnessed those events. But the truth is that almost everyone I know is affected by these events. The thing is, is that when we see hurting like we saw last week, last Sunday... We know what it is to hurt like that. We know what it is to feel the pain, the suffering, the, the tension, the fear, the, the confusion. We know what it is to feel it. Now, I'm just, just thinking back over 12 months of the life of this church and the people who call this church home. People who I love, people who you love, who have hurt We've dealt with this kind of pain that is, that is sudden and, and uncontrollable and when we don't have answers for it. I mean, not only do we know the pain of this kind of suffering, the pain of this kind of hurt, this, the pain of this kind of loss, not only do we know that pain, we know what it is to ask the questions that come from that pain. Right? I mean, don't we know? Don't we know what it is to wonder why such horrible things, such horrific events take place? Don't we know what it is to ask that question? Don't we know what it is to ask and struggle with the questions of and believing? I mean, we're just teaching and just learning that Jesus is great and he's glorious and he's good and he's gracious. How in the world do we, how do we bring this into being together with this idea that, that there are such horrific events that take place? How? 
How do we, how do we reconcile these, these ideas? How do we grow in our faith and in who Jesus is while we look around us? It's in times like these that I'm thankful for passages like the one we're going to study today. You see in Luke 11, 7, or Luke 7, 11 through 17, we get to, we, we get to behold, we get to, to witness Jesus working his great power to accomplish a great miracle that gives us a great hope. A great hope. One that doesn't disappoint, but one that will be brought to be, brought to reality, made tangible. So if you will, just follow along as I read. Begin reading in verse 11. We'll read through verse 17. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain. Jesus had been in Capernaum. He'd been serving, ministering, working there. And he leaves that place and he goes to a town called Nain. It's about 25 miles south. And his disciples had a great crowd, his disciples and a great crowd went with him. So remember, Jesus has been, has selected 12 apostles. Among those 12 apostles, there, or, or around those 12 apostles was a great number of disciples that were following him. And around that number of disciples is a greater multitude of just people who were checking him out. You can go back and see that in, in Luke chapter 6. So these disciples, including the 12 apostles and, and probably even many more people, great crowd went with him. And as he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her. And said to her, do not weep. Then he came up and he touched the bier and the bearers stood still. This stood still. This would have been shocking to them. It's totally out of the cultural context, totally out of character, totally different than anyone would have expected. He walks up to the bier, he touches it. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread throughout the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. It's no wonder to me, as I read this story, as I think about it, and as I study the story, it's no wonder to me that, that Luke made sure that this story was recorded in his gospel account. I, I'm certain, I'm just certain that, that he looked forward to the moment that he would get to write these words so that people would know what happened at this gate at the front of this town called Nain. A, a place where people were not familiar with, a place where people would have passed by without thinking twice, a place that seemed to be nondescript. And, and it's the only time it's mentioned in the, all of the scripture is this one moment. But yet Luke makes sure, he makes sure that we're hearing about it. In fact, the reality is, I, if you think about it, if you just consider for a moment what it was, was for Luke, I mean, he is doing research. He's not an eyewitness to this event. He's, he's doing research. He's going around talking to people. This is what we learned at the beginning of Luke. He's going around talking to people. He's done research, and he's studied it, and he's made certain that he's telling stories that are certain, that are true. And this is a story, it says, this last verse, it says this report about him spread throughout the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. It went viral. 
Like if I, if I talk to you about, about Charlie and Charlie bit my finger, most of you will know what happened when Charlie bit his finger. Right? Luke didn't have to look far. It was all over Judea. The story was everywhere. And so he wanted to make sure that, that, that Theophilus, the man he's writing to, and, and, and us, his readers, even 2,000 years later, would hear of this story of great power and great authority that would give great hope. The story went viral, and I just imagine Luke is, is excited. And why wouldn't he be excited to write this story down? Have you ever known a dead person that's come back to life? Look, I don't want to take away from the idea that maybe you know someone who was in a near-death experience that was in a trauma situation that had CPR performed and they began breathing again and their heart began beating again or, or that they were shocked with a defibrillator, you know, like you see it on the movies and boom, clear and everybody's like boom and, and, and the person comes back and it's exciting. I don't, I don't want to take away from those moments. But have you ever known a person that's been dead like, like, I'm not talking about just dead for a moment. They got shot back to life. I'm talking about dead, like, like they had been prepared for burial. Like People were certain he was dead, and they'd wrapped him up in, in claws and, and covered him with spices. They had hired, the, the, the widow would have hired the, 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 the professional mourner. They, she would have hired the flute players to come and play the dirge. You know, she, she, she would have made sure, she would have made certain that the, that, the, that the procession had been gathered so that it could walk outside the city. This man was dead. He wasn't, as, as Miracle Max put it in The Princess Bride, he wasn't just mostly dead. You see, there's a big difference between mostly dead and all dead. Mostly dead is still partly alive. This guy was all dead. He was all dead. But, but here we are. Why wouldn't Luke want to tell this story? Because by the end of it, this man who was all dead would sit up essentially his coffin it was an open coffin it was more like a litter more like a, 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 a something that they might carry a wounded person off a battlefield but he sits up in his coffin and begins to speak and one last reference to princess bride even Antigo Montoya knows that dead people don't talk not only would he speak, instead of ending up in the graveyard, he'd go home with his mother. Do you know anyone? Have you ever experienced anything in which Jesus, or, or, or which a person who has been dead sits up, speaks, and goes home instead of to the graveyard? Man, I, I don't think so. It's not a commonplace thing. It's not something that happens every day. Why wouldn't Luke want to make sure that we see it? What would Luke, what would his purpose be in making sure that we know it? Except that in it we would see the, the great power and the great authority and the great compassion of Jesus Christ. And because of Jesus' great compassion, his great power and his authority, we are given great Hope, and I think that's what Luke wants us to know.
we have hope. I mean, just look at the details of the story. I think you'll see what I mean. Jesus had left Capernaum. He had just healed the servant of the centurion, even without being present. Like, he healed that servant. He just said the word, and the servant was healed. He wasn't anywhere near. He wasn't anywhere in the vicinity. He couldn't see him, couldn't touch him, and he said the word, and the servant was healed. He, at some point after that event, we don't know exactly when, some point after that event, maybe a day, two days, three days, soon after, he gets up, he leaves Capernaum, and he walks about 25 miles southwest. It's, it's about a day's journey across difficult terrain. And he arrives just in time to see this funeral procession leaving the city. And there's a considerable, num- considerable number of people there. So it's a big crowd. The first crowd, this, this crowd from the city, they were made up of people who were sad who were mourning, who were, who were stuck in this, in this reality of, of that life is uncertain, stuck in this place of having, they were powerless to change this, and, 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 and ultimately they were hopeless, and no one was more hopeless than this widow. Did you catch that she's a widow? See, not only has she just lost her son, which happens to be her only son, she's a widow. Like, this isn't the first time she's experienced great loss. This isn't the first time that someone close to her has died. This isn't the first time she's led the procession of a funeral to a graveyard. And, 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 and in this culture, this is a big deal. This is a huge issue. Because now there's no one in, in their culture, there is no one for her to count on for protection or provision. There is no one in her culture that can, that can take her, that can carry on the family name and make certain that the family isn't taken advantage of. She is alone in the world. Surrounded by a community of people, but alone in the world. And not to mention this dead guy who doesn't do anything but lay there dead until he's told to do something different. Well, the second crowd is a much different crowd. You know, they've been with Jesus now for a little bit of time. They've seen him. If you go back to Luke chapter 6, these same people have seen him heal multitudes of people, seen him cast out demons, heard him teach with great authority, with authority that has struck them to the core. There was a large multitude of people. Some were disciples, some were not. But they had followed him. They had just seen his his power expressed as he healed a man without even being near him. By just speaking the word, you can imagine that the tone and the tenor and the attitude of, of this crowd was a little different than the crowd that was walking along this funeral bier. And walking alongside this widowed woman. They didn't know what Jesus was going to do. They had no idea why they had followed him so far. They didn't have any intention of going and seeing him raise a dead man. But by the end of it, these two crowds would stand together in amazement as, as what started off as a funeral became a worship service. As what began for some a day of hopelessness would be filled with hope. As what began a, a, a day for some thinking Jesus was simply capable of healing the sick and learning that he was capable of raising the dead. 
You see, they'd all grow that day. And they'd all be given hope that day. Let's just think about hope. I mean, hope, when we talk about hope, we've, we've got to deal with the definition and the understanding we have of hope. There's a distinction to be made with the way we use the word versus the way the, the Bible uses the word and demonstrates the attitude. See, hope in our current usage demonstrates an optimistic feeling, an uncertainty about the future. We, we use it in, in ways that speak of wishful thought. It's not based on anything certain, not based on anything stable. For example, corporately in our church, we have several hopes that we long for, that we're dreaming of this year. We hope to, to add on to our building. We've talked to you about that since January. We hope to add on to our building, not because we need the sanctuary space as much as we need the children's space. We hope to add on to the building and, and, and make room for more children to come and hear about Jesus. We hope to find a replacement for a worship leader so that Matt can be sent to go and plant. And so this morning, even this morning, you're seeing some of the fruit of that hope as, as Jason leads us in worship. We hope to do this. We, we hope to, to raise up leaders in the small church in Tokal, Senegal. So that we can see that church grow from a place of being the point of mission to being partners together in the mission. That we can see them established in such a way that if we were unable to return, that we would be able to believe, that we would be confident in the fact that they had someone teaching them the word, someone caring for their needs, someone shepherding the sheep. And these are noble hopes. These are things that God has called us to in his word. They're things that he's called us to desire. But we have no certain promise that any of these will come to pass. But we speak of hoping that they will. We just don't hold hopes corporately, though, do we? I mean, don't you have hopes in your life? And maybe hopes in your family. Hopes that your children won't grow up and be criminals, you know? Hopes that. Maybe they'll grow up and be president. I, I don't know. Hopes for your relationships, your husbands and wives, your brothers and sisters, your friends and neighbors. Hopes in your career that you'll advance rather than get fired. Don't we hold these kind of hopes? Don't we speak of these kind of hopes? And, and our hope goes even further because it gets even, it gets even a little less significant in life. But, man, we can make it pretty Significant because don't you hope that somebody's going to win the World Cup or hope that we're going to win gold medals in the Olympics this summer? Or don't you hope that your team will end up in the Super Bowl next year? Or don't you hope? What do you hope for? You see, this misses the understanding of what Jesus is providing for us in hope. J.I. Packer in his book, Never Beyond Hope, writes this. Optimism hopes for the best without any guarantee of its arriving and is often more than whistling is often no more than whistling in the dark christian hope by contrast is faith looking ahead to the fulfillment of the promise of god he goes on optimism is a wish without warrant christian hope is a certainty guaranteed by god himself optimism reflects ignorance as to whether good things will ever come christian hope expresses knowledge that every day of his life and every moment beyond it the believer can say with truth on the basis of god's own commitment that the best is yet to come 
You know, this is a Christian hope. This is the, the biblical perspective of hope. This is the hope that we see revealed in this passage. John Piper says, ordinarily, when we express hope, we are expressing uncertainty. But this is not the biblical distinctive. This is not the distinctive biblical meaning of hope. Biblical hope is not just a desire for something good in the future, but rather biblical hope is a confident expectation and desire for something good in the future. It's a confident expectation. It's a certainty of what's to come. John Calvin defines hope this way. The word hope I take for faith, and indeed hope is nothing else but the constancy of faith. It's not just faith for today, but faith tomorrow and faith for the days that are coming that you can't yet see. Hope is future-focused faith, confidence in what will be because of what has been. Confidence in what is coming because of what God has already done. Confidence in what he's promised because of what he's completed. Confidence in, in what he's, what, what he's uh, uh, going to do because of what he's already accomplished. This is the biblical idea of hope. This is the hope that Luke is, is presenting to us. This is the, the, the hopefulness, the, the desire, the ability to look forward and see something better. See, he didn't come just giving us a, a, a parable that would present to us a, present to us a, a resurrection, although that's amazing. See, that's not even the point of the whole story. When you look at the story, the focus is on the widow. And his movement is motivated, motivated by his compassion for the widow. And the reason he exercises power is not simply because a man is dead, but because a woman is left without hope. See, he didn't come to fix the dead man's problem. He came to fix that widow's problem. The dead man is certainly better off because of it. But the widow, the widow has found a new hope. And even now in a world thoroughly familiar with fear and confusion and suffering and pain, whether it's 49 people in Orlando, a child at Disney, a friend of yours, a child in your womb, the inability to conceive, the pain that you carry. Even in spite of that, there is hope. Confident expectation of what is to come because of what God has accomplished. And let me just show you four things. Four things that en enable us to remain hopeful because of Jesus' compassion we are made hopeful rather than left hopeless. And it's interesting. Jesus wasn't looking for an invitation into this situation. If you compare this story to the previous story, he acted because the centurion asked him to come. But he didn't wait. He didn't look for an invitation. It wasn't like, like he gets to the gate and they see Jesus and they say, Hey, Jesus, you can do something about this. That is not what moved Jesus. And truly, if you think about the greater scheme of things, even the centurion was only able to ask Jesus to come because Jesus was already there. But the thing that motivates Jesus here, and you can see it in verse 13, when the Lord 
saw her, he had compassion. He cared. He felt, he, he felt it. He, 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 in, he empathized with it. He sensed it. And so this is radically different. This is a radically different perspective than some distant God who doesn't know what we deal with. This is some radically different idea than, than a God who just sits and, and toys with us and enjoys watching us deal with the difficulties of life and thinks, oh, if they'll figure it out, I'll bless them. This is a God who cares who steps into the midst of our existence, not because we've pled for him to, but because he cares to. This is beautiful. This is the compassion that moves him to action, and because of his compassion, not because of who we are, not because of what we deserve, not because of of what we've done, but because of his compassion, we are made hopeful rather than left hopeless. You see, the reality is is that we do not have a priest who is unfamiliar with our weaknesses. We don't don't sit under a God who doesn't know what it is to feel this pain. The truth is, the truth is that he knows it all too well. Because as these two crowds met, there were two sons meeting. A son that was destined to die. Who would die in our place for our sin. Who didn't deserve what he received. A son who was destined to die. The son of God. And a son who had been destined by God to live. Who God had known from the very beginning. There would be that moment at that gate in front of the town of Nain. In which he would say, arise. You see, our God, the God that we have gathered here and sung to, the God that that we have praised, the God that I have called you to believe in his greatness and his glory, in his goodness and in his grace, that God, that God knows what it is to suffer. He knows what it is to suffer because he didn't just suffer for us, he suffered because of us. You see, the reality is, is that, that he knows his suffering because he is so compassionate, because he cares so deeply. And because he does, our hope, our, our, our hopelessness, I should say, is replaced with hope. Because of Jesus' compassion, we are no longer, we are hopeful rather than hopeless. Because of Jesus' power, And authority, we have hope that there will be an end to our mourning. Just imagine, just for a moment, what it was like to be that widow. Probably not that difficult. There's probably been moments where you've cried under the weight of suffering and loss. And imagine someone walks up to you and says, do not Weep. What do you think your reaction is to that? How do you think you receive that? Maybe not immediately at first, but maybe maybe in a moment of retrospect, maybe in a moment of reflection, you're thinking, what in the world is that person even talking about? I deserve to weep. This is worth weeping over. 
I have not just lost my son. I have lost my way. I have not just now lost my husband. I have lost my family. I have lost my sense of belonging in this world, in this community. This is worthy of weeping. Why Jesus walked up to her and commanded her to stop weeping and then not immediately go on to the to the beer and touched the beer and, and, and said to the boy, Arise. Then he'd be expecting her to do what all religion has expected people to do all along. And whether that's religion in the church or religion outside the church, we're supposed to just sum up our own power and bear up under the weight and square our shoulders and puff out our chest and stand here strong because in our own power, we're expected to stand. But Jesus didn't look at this woman and say, do not weep, you have power not to weep. He said, do not weep. And then he showed her the power that would end her mourning. You see, this is a beautiful moment in the, in, in, in the, in, in the, the series of these events. It's the hope that we have. See, he's not ever expected you to stand up on your own. He's not ever expected you to figure it out by yourself. He's not ever expected you to, to determine things on your, uh, by, by your own strength or, or make your way through your own power. By his power and his authority, we have hope that there comes an end to our mourning. That we have hope that one day tears will be wiped away, that death will be no more, that pain and suffering will be put to, to an end. That there will be a death to death. It's not the power of just any man. You know, they, they, they thought he was a prophet. and they, they, they thought he was a prophet because of, of what had happened in the Old Testament. And you go back and read the Old Testament, 1 Kings chapter 17, verses 17 through 24. They're not on the screen. I'm just going to refer to them. You can look them up later. But Elijah was a prophet who'd been sent from God. And Elijah... He, a very similar set of circumstances. There was a, a widow who had lost her son, and Elijah prays and calls on God. And he goes through this whole series of, of, of things that he, he, he did to, to see God raise this boy. But Jesus didn't do any of that. By his own power and by his own authority, he walks up and he says, Arise. He reaches into death. And he brings this boy back to life. See, this power, this authority, this is what gives us hope. This is what gives us hope that one day our mourning will end, that evil will cease to exist. I mean, just think of this. Just think of this, for example, the, the people that, that have lost so much last Sunday as they, as they awoke to the news that 49 people had been killed. And they're fraught with frustration and they're, and they're fraught with pain and suffering and, and wondering, is it my kid? Is it my brother? Is it my sister? Is it my friend? Well, people immediately, they're stepping up and they're giving answers and they're telling you where to find your hope. Some of them are saying, let's get rid of Islam. Some of them are saying, we just religion altogether. But there's two voices that have been very loud, even lasting through the week, that just astonish me. 
If we get rid of all the guns, then we will cease to have horrific events happen. Mass shootings will end. If we could just rid the world, just get rid of our guns, or at least control our guns, then we will take control of this problem. Then we will fix this problem. But on the other side of that argument is those people that are screaming, no, if we just had more guns... Like, if everybody would arm themselves, then when this guy had walked into the bar, they'd all shot him. That's the two arguments. Those are hopeless arguments. They are senseless, empty arguments. A a removal of guns or more guns in the location, that doesn't fix anybody's problem. But the power and authority of Jesus Christ promises that there will come a day when the death will be put to death and the dead will be made living and tears will be wiped away and pain will cease to exist and evil will have no reign it will be put in its place because of Jesus' power and authority we have hope that there will be an end to our mourning because of Jesus' presence We have hope that we too worship and will worship in God's presence. This is why Jesus came. I mean, he came to us to bring us to him. When Jesus raised this boy, the the people knew that God had come to them. They knew it. They they were certain of it. They're confessing it. They're saying it. They're they're looking at it themselves and they're they're recognizing, whoa, this, this is amazing. This prophet has come. God has visited his people. Because of the hope that Christ presents to us in this miracle, in this work, by his power and authority, we can be certain that even this morning as we gather, we worship in his presence. Christ has come. God has visited his people. But it doesn't end with this moment. You see, next Sunday... We're going to gather in his presence again. And the Sunday after that, and the Sunday after that, and the Sunday after that, till we gather around a table and we join the likes of Job. And with our own eyes, we see our Redeemer. In our own flesh, we put our hands on him. But that promise, that hope, isn't just corporate. He promised us as he was about to ascend. And one of his last commands to his people was to go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. And what did he say? I am with you even to the end of the age. You don't walk by yourself. You don't live Alone, he is with you. God has visited with you. He lives alongside you. He has indwelt you by his spirit. And just consider again what this means for God. What he endures to be in our presence what he's had to touch because he's touched us. I mean, Jesus walked up to this, this 
dead men. And in the culture, this was taboo. I mean, this was against the ceremonial law for sure. I mean, he would have been considered unclean and there would have been a whole process and a length of time in which he would have had to follow certain rituals so that he could be considered clean again and be even welcome in synagogues and welcome to give uh, sacrifice. He, he would have had to walk through this whole series of religious things to make himself that way. But Jesus stepping in, God, who didn't deserve it, who didn't earn it, who didn't, he, 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 didn't, he didn't do something that, that, that made him worthy of suffering. But yet he comes into our presence and touches death so that we might know life. This is our hope. Not that we made our way to God, but God has entered into our mess. And that he's been willing to touch death that we might be made alive. This is what he's done for us. And because of what he's done for us, we have hope for what will come for us. And finally, last thing, because of Jesus' identity, we have hope that one day our faith will be sight. We will be just like these people. Some of them maybe had not ever seen Jesus physically perform a miracle, but they'd heard the stories. And maybe when he walked up, they had some form of faith. Maybe they had some form or idea that he could do something for sick people. But their current faith was blown out of the water when they saw how capable he was. See, we're going to be just like them. Because having heard the stories, having been made ready, we believe in what he has done. We believe in his power. We believe in his greatness. We believe in his glory. We believe in his goodness. We believe in his graciousness. But there's a day coming. And we can be certain it's coming. It's a check that we can take to the bank. There's a day coming when we'll be in front of him, seeing him with our own eyes. I made reference to this just a moment ago, Job 19, 25 through 27. For I know that my Redeemer lives. A man who had suffered greatly, who was in the pit of despair. For I know that my Redeemer lives lives. Do you hear the hope? And at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. My heart faints within me. It's too, too much for him just to imagine fully. But hope that fills him so no matter what we suffer, no matter what the pain, the suffering, the fear, the, 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 the hurt, the evil that comes against us, the, the, the difficulty that we face, the challenges, the obstacles, there is nothing, absolutely nothing that will keep Christ from accomplishing his purpose for us. We have hope because of Christ. We have hope in what he has done. We have faith in what he has done. We have hope for what's to come. Now, the hope I've been promising, the hope I've been proclaiming is for people who are believing already in what Jesus has done. You see, the reality is this, is that if we took this one little passage and we 
stripped it out of its context, then we might be able to say that this hope was universal. It was made for everyone. And to some degree, everyone does have the confident expectation that Christ will come, that Christ will put an end to our mourning, that Christ will, will, will uh, be with us. He is always here. But the reality is, if you're not trusting him now, you are not able to enjoy his hope for your future. So Christians, as you've heard these things, I just encourage you, believe in him. Non-Christians, I would encourage you, repent of your sin and believe in him that you might know not just the confidence what has been done, but confidence, confident expectation in the future that is to come. That you would be able to enjoy the blessings of this hope. That you would turn from your sin and you would follow Christ in your life. That you too would be able to stand with us in this crowd of people looking forward to a day when our hope and our faith become sight. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for being compassionate. Thank you for caring about us. Thank you for working on our behalf. Jesus, thank you for letting us see your power so tangibly, for letting us get a glimpse of the Father. For letting us know that the best is yet to come. So would you, Spirit, in this moment, meet us in our despair and replace our hopelessness with hope. Because I know that the distant pain and the distant suffering of the news is not nearly as deep not nearly as real to us as those things in the lives of the people in this room today. Would you meet us at that point of need and call us, enable us, empower us to see how you fix not just our spiritual problems, but that there is fruit for our physical problems, for our everyday problems because you have come to be present with us. I thank you and trust that you will do this. And I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.